Good morning. You all look very warm this morning, or not? Glad that you're with us. If you're a guest of ours, of course, we're honored to have you with us today. I heard a story about a couple that was leaving church one Sunday morning, and the wife turned to her husband and said, do you think that Flanagan girl's dyeing her hair? And the husband said, how would I know that? I didn't know I didn't notice anything different about her hair. And the wife said, well, how about Mrs. Smith? Do you really think that what she had on was appropriate for a mother of four? And the husband said, I didn't notice what she had on. She looked fine to me. Well, how about those kids that were running wild through the auditorium? I mean, who was in charge of those kids? And he said, I'm sorry, I, I didn't notice anybody's kids running in the auditorium. She looked at her husband and said, wow, a lot of good it does bringing you to church. Now, we're spending a few weeks here at the beginning of the year talking about church, the church, specifically talking about the church through the lens of Jesus, not necessarily how I view the church, not necessarily how you view the church, not how the church views herself, but how's the church viewed through the lens of Jesus? What does Jesus uh, expect the church to look like? How does Jesus expect the church to function? And so, like the lady in my joke, maybe it's been a while since you've actually stopped and asked yourself, why am I here? And what, what are you doing here? Why did you get up this morning? Coldest day of the year, I think, here in Hillsborough County. What motivated you to get up, get yourself ready, maybe get your whole family ready, get in the car, get here on time, looking great. By the way, you look great. What was it that motivated you to decide, I want to be a part of this? And I guess there's probably a lot of different answers that I would get if we were being honest with ourselves. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm here because my parents make me come here. Okay. Maybe you're thinking, I'm here because of my wife or my husband or a family member, and I'm, I'm really just trying to keep peace in the family. You know, things just go better during the week if we worship together. Maybe you're thinking, well, this is where I always am. Oh, where else would I be on a, on a Sunday morning? Maybe you're thinking, this is where my people are. And these are where, this is where my friends are. We mentioned last week, Dave mentioned it this morning, that our... Uh, Uh, advance that slide for me, Matt. I, this isn't working. Our core identity, our core reality is the fact that Jesus is Lord. And everything we do flows out of the fact that Jesus is Lord. Ultimately, you know, I'm here. Uh, I'm, I'm a part of this family. Ultimately, because Jesus is Lord. And I hope that's why you're here. I hope you're with us this morning. I hope you're a part of this because you've come to the conclusion Jesus is Lord. And you know what? If you're not quite there yet, that's okay. Because what we're trying to do is kind of help each other, you know, take a step at a time uh, to get from here to there. 
But as difficult as it might be for you or for us to verbalize why we're here, why we do what we do, why we're a part of this, it has been my experience that it's not that hard for people to verbalize why they're not here. And it's not that hard for people to tell you why they're not a part of this. People are usually pretty quick and and ready to tell you what the problems they have with, with church are. What's wrong with church? Why they're not a part of church? This past week, I googled what keeps people away from church. Try that sometime. Not right now, but try it sometime. In 0.46 seconds, I got 546 million results of what keeps people away from church. Let me share with you the top Google results. 15 reasons people walk away from the church. 10 reasons why people are leaving your church. Five reasons people are drifting away from church. Six reasons people are leaving church and what Jesus would say about it. 12 reasons why you might not feel like going to church. Now, I did not read all 546 million of those results. But I did read enough, I went down that rabbit hole long enough to find out that there are a couple of reasons, a couple of things that keep coming up in just about all of those listicles. People that you know, have reasons for not being attached to a part of a church usually have a lot of the same reasons. And the ones that, uh, advance one more slide for me. The ones that came up over and over again are people see Christians as hypocritical, judgmental, and restrictive. Some version of those three reasons showed up over and over and over again on why people stay away from church. Because their, their idea of a Christian script is Christian is going to be hypocritical, judgmental, and restrictive. Fifteen reasons people walk away from church. Because Christians are hypocritical, judgmental, and restrictive. Five reasons why people are, are, are not attending your church. Because the church is hypocritical, judgmental, and restrictive. That is the world's script when it comes to Christians. That's the world's script when it comes to the church. You know the reason why I I quit going? They're hypocritical. They're judgmental. They're incredibly restricting. Now, I'll tell you, I've I've got a problem. I want to talk about that script. I want to challenge that script a little bit. I've got a problem with those first two things on the script there. When people claim that Christians and the church are hypocritical and judgmental, and my problem is quite often they're right. <laughs> That's my problem. Because there are times when we can be pretty hypocritical. And there are times when we come off a little bit judgmental. I have conversations with people all the time. You probably do as well. And when that comes up, I always try to, you know, share some version of those sayings, things like, you know, hey, you know, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Or we're not here because we think we're perfect. We're here because we know we aren't. And all those cliches are true. They're absolutely true. But, but I get it that people say, you know, Christianity, the church, it's, it's hypocritical. It's judgmental. Because sometimes we are. 
I like what Bob Goff once said. Does the church have all kinds of problems? You bet. It's made up of people like me, so I get that. But all I need to know about the church is Jesus picked her. We are an imperfect group of people trying to follow a very perfect Savior. So, yeah, we're not here to hide our problems. We've got lots of problems. We're here to heal our problems, and we're working on that. Um, I want to talk about that a little bit uh, this morning. Uh, Talking about the, the world's script. I also have a problem with that third one. When the world says, you know, Christianity, you Christians, you're restrictive. That's a false narrative. That's a false narrative that people have heard someone else say, and they kind of promote that because it sounds good. It sounds like a reason to not be involved and not be attached because the church is so restrictive. But people who say that don't know very much about God. They don't know very much about the gospel. And they don't know very much about the church either. Uh, Let me throw some verses at you. Because I searched another topic this past week. I searched freedom in Christ. And I didn't get 546 results, but I got a lot. So I just want to throw some verses at you without commentary to see what the Bible says about Christianity, about following God being restrictive. Here you go. Next slide, please. There you go. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Christ has really set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Next slide. In Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom, confidence, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you through Christ Jesus from the power of sin that leads to death. Then to the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, Behold my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I could really go on and on. There are a lot of passages that talk about the fact that the gospel, that God is not restrictive. That that following Jesus is actually a very freeing experience. But of course, the script that the world has of us is, you all are really restrictive. There there are things that that are prohibited. There are things that that you can't do if you're going to be a Christian. And it's too restricting. So I can't live my life like I want to. And I can't be as fulfilled as I want to be. Let's talk about that. Because there are some things that God prohibits. Next slide. There are things that God says, don't do that. Don't say that. Don't go there. Don't get involved in that kind of activity. So the question becomes... What is the reason? Some actions and some attitudes. 
And, and, I, and I want to try to set this up as well as I can. I'm going to ask you to kind of stick with me this morning. Uh, we're headed somewhere. But the idea behind prohibition is that there's a problem that needs to be addressed. That, that there is a, a social problem. And you have data to back up the fact that people who are involved in this activity, uh, it's, it's harmful. It's hurtful. It's hurtful to themselves. It's hurtful to other people. And of course, as people of God, we want to be healed, not hurt. And we want other people to be healed and not hurt. In fact, we would like people not to have to go through something you know, that they might be headed towards. We want to be proactive in this whole thing. And probably when you saw the word prohibition, a lot of you thought of that word with a capital P, you know, the, the, the era in American history, the, the time of prohibition, which is actually a perfect example of where I'm trying to get to here and what I'm trying to explain. You know, 100 years ago, there was a mountain of data that pointed to the fact that the abuse of alcohol was a bad thing. It was bad for individuals, and it was bad for society. Um, there's even more data today, a hundred years later, that the abuse of alcohol is a bad thing. It doesn't help an individual to abuse it. It doesn't help a, a, a culture to abuse it. I think anybody who's honest, anybody who's kind of open-minded will say, you know, I, I agree that the abuse of alcohol is hurtful. So the question becomes, how do you keep people out of that? You understand what I'm asking? It's a tough question. How do you keep people out of that? How do I take over your life? How do I take over your future? So that uh, you don't do something that you very well might want to do. How do I stop you from doing something that you want to do, but it's going to be bad for you? Now, let, let's take that concept and, and slide it into Scripture. And the first place that this is modeled in Scripture. And I don't even have to put it on the screen because we have it memorized. It's at the very beginning of the story. In the book of Genesis. In the Garden of Eden, you have this perfect family. You got a dad. God. You got a boy and a girl. Adam and Eve. Uh, he really is the perfect dad. You know, he's always there. Literally. He's omnipresent. And he really does know everything because he's omniscient. And my dad really can beat up your dad because he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. So you actually have a perfect father and you have a perfect environment and you have a very small number of prohibitions. In fact, there's only one, right? What was God's prohibition for Adam and Eve? Don't eat of the fruit of the tree that's right here in the middle of the garden. That was the prohibition. Don't eat of this tree. And what do the kids do? The kids with this perfect father and the kids in this perfect environment. What do they do? They eat the fruit of the tree that God said, don't eat this fruit. So, is it possible that you could have a perfect father and the kids still sin? Yeah. 
And, and you know, some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of us need to hear this this morning. It, it's because it's something that we wrestle with. Because a lot of people are, are, are heartbroken about decisions that their adult children have made. And you need to know that, that a perfect father had kids who didn't do what he wanted them to do. But the question I, I really want to ask this morning is, why didn't God just block them from the tree? If God didn't want Adam and Eve eating from that tree, why didn't he just block them from it? I mean, he's an omnipotent God. He's an omniscient God. It shouldn't be that big a deal to stop two humans from doing the thing that you didn't want them to do. So why didn't God just block them from the tree? And you think, well, the free will. Okay. But what does that even mean, you know, philosophically? What does it mean that God makes a decision to allow for something that goes against his will? Then he creates an environment where it is possible to do something that goes against his will. And then he puts people there who have a desire to do something that goes against his will. And then on top of that, he creates a way to redeem them before they even make the decision to go against his will. Why? Why would God do that? Well, God is working on family. And God allows us today to be able to look back to the very beginning of the story, be able to look back and to read in the book of Genesis how this whole thing started. And God says, my intention is, I want my children to live in the world making choices. Just like I make choices. And when my second Adam comes, he's going to find himself in a garden, and he's going to have to make a choice about a tree as well. And when you see the choices that I made, and when you see the choice that Jesus made, you're going to start to have a better understanding of just the kind of family that I want to establish. Have a better understanding of just the level of love that I and Christ have for this family. I think, I think one of the challenges of the church is quite often we believe we're serving God by blocking the tree. We believe that the obedience, uh, the surest way to please God is through achieving obedience. And that's our, that's our uh, measuring stick. And I'm hoping you're listening to me very graciously, as Gary would say. But we want obedience to be the, the tell-all, end-all. Meaning, they didn't do wrong. They did what was right. However the outcome, however we achieve that outcome of obedience, we're going to measure success that way. They didn't do what was wrong. They did what was right. They did what they were supposed to do. So if they don't swear, and they don't steal, and they don't smoke, and they don't chew, and they don't go with girls who do, however we got there, success. Even if they don't actually want this. Even if they don't actually feel free. Even if 
they don't actually love Jesus. Listen, you might disagree with everything I've said and everything I'm about to say. I'm just telling you where I've landed. I'm just telling you where I've kind of, you know, ended up here, uh, for the time being at least, as I put a lot of thought into this idea of prohibition and freedom and church and family. Because God knew if he changed, if he blocked the tree, the only thing his children would want would be the tree. You parents know that, right? If God had blocked the tree, the only thing Adam and Eve would have wanted would have been the tree. And if God had blocked the tree, they would no longer see God as the desire of their heart. They would see God as the one who cheated them out of the desire of their heart. It's a little bit like the man who stays faithful to his marriage because he doesn't want to pay the price of being unfaithful. You know, I'm staying faithful to my wife because I, I can't afford not to be. I can't afford to go through a divorce. You know, financially, I can't afford the embarrassment that will go with that. I can't afford the hassle of all that. So I'm going to stay faithful to my wife. But the truth is, I don't really love my wife. And I don't really love our family. I don't really love Jesus. I don't really love this. I don't really love that. I'm just, I'm keeping my marriage vows because I'm too afraid not to. And I'm not willing to deal with the consequences of not to. The consequences of unfaithfulness, they're just too high. Would you like a relationship built on that foundation? Would you like to build your family on that foundation? I'm not in this because I love you. I'm just in this because the consequences are too high. I'm, I'm too afraid to live my life differently. Do you think God would want a relationship built on that foundation? If I told God, I don't really love you, I'm just afraid if I do this thing that I kind of want to do, that might be the one thing that keeps me out of heaven. So I'm afraid to do that thing. I'm afraid of the consequences. And that's my motivation. And that kind of approach is based on fear and consequences. Now listen, not all fear is bad, obviously. Not all consequences are useless. But a relationship based solely on fear and consequences is going to severely limit that relationship. If you're building a marriage on fear and consequences, there's not going to be any intimacy there. If you're modeling your walk with God on fear and consequences, there's not going to be any intimacy in that relationship either. So, the world says, I know your script. You Christians who are hypocritical and judgmental and restrictive, I know your script. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chase women, don't do this. That's your script. But you realize in God's economy, that's like the moral baseline, right? You all know that, right? You know, don't do all these things. That's not the, that's not the resume that we build. That's, that's the, the blank page. We're called to be moral people, to be nice people. Of course you're not going to do something to put someone else in danger. Of course you're not going to abuse someone else because you have desires. 
That's like, that's like where we start. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have a relationship with God. But so often this thing that's going on, we have this thing going on within us that we believe that what we're for and, and what we're against is the proof of our relationship with God. This is what I'm for. This is what I'll do. This is what I won't do. So that's how I know that I'm okay with God. And because of that, because of what's on our list, it's pretty easy for us to be judgmental when someone else doesn't have the same things on their list. And it's pretty easy for us to be hypocritical when we value something on our list and we don't value very much something else that's on our list. But you really can't justify that with the gospel. You can't read the gospel and come away with that, uh, with that measuring stick. There's a, a definition there of the gospel that I would just now be putting up if I could. Um, God is in the world and all things can change. I've heard a lot of different definitions of the gospel. I heard that definition a while back and, and it stuck with me and I wish I could remember where I heard it. But God is in the world and all things can change. Because here's the thing. All of those things that make up our script, all of those things that are on our list that we say we don't do that, you know we do that. All of those things that we say, these are the things that are prohibited. There's someone here today that's struggling with that very thing. You know that, right? But the message of the gospel is, God is in the world. And all things can change. I remind you of John 13, 35. By this all men will know you my disciples if you have love one for another. So somehow I've got to learn to love people right where they are on their spiritual journey. Not where I want them to be. Not where I expect them to be. Somehow I've got to love people where they are, not after they come to their senses. I've got to love people who are lost far away. And I've got to love people who are lost right at home. There's a couple stories in the New Testament that, uh, that resonate with us, that, that, that we love to, to talk about because they're just so good. The prodigal son and the good Samaritan. You know, we, we love those stories. They, they strike a chord with us. But you remember the, the prodigal son? That son goes off and lives a riotous lifestyle, but then he comes back home. And the dad goes out to meet the son. And he welcomes him back home, invites him into the celebration. But there's another son who's been home the whole time, that elder brother. And he's very upset that the younger son is getting this attention. And so the father goes out to the elder brother and appeals to him basically the exact same way he appealed to the younger brother. Remember that? Remember the story? That famous story shows up in Luke chapter 15, the third story of a back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back parables that Jesus told. Jesus tells three stories, back-to-back-to-back. -to -back -to -back. He tells a story about a sheep that gets lost far away. 
And he tells a story about a coin that gets lost right at home. Then he tells a story about a family. Some are lost far away. Some are lost right at home. But the message of all three of those stories is the same. Jesus says, I will turn the world upside down till I give all of them an opportunity to be found. Because God is in the world and all things can change. Seeing the church through the lens of Jesus means that I've got to see people the way Jesus sees people. And I've got to treat people the way Jesus treats people. And I've got to love people the way Jesus loves people. To walk alongside each other. To help us all just take one more step. We're all just taking one more step towards Jesus. Because God is in the world. And all things can change. And when that becomes our script, when our script becomes God is in the world and all things can change, the world will see that and their response will be, never seen anything like that before. That's our challenge. Not just to see the church through the lens of Jesus, but to be the church that Jesus has called us to be. We've got a song that we're going to use as a song of encouragement this morning. If, as a church family, if we can help you, pray with you about anything, we're going to invite you to come meet us at the front of the auditorium. Let's go ahead and be standing, and we'll sing.